Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work we have featured in the past, we catch up with the researchers to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Chris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Diva. Hello and welcome. Our guests today are Professor Alexandra Vella and Dr. Sarah Grek. Both are linguists, and they're looking into linguistic variations in Malta. Can you tell us a bit more about what variation means? One of the best things about looking at variation in Malta is that we have at least two languages sitting side by side, and we can use whatever features or characteristics any of those languages have that might appeal to make ourselves more distinct and, if you like, we stand out a little bit more from the crowd, <laughs> in that sense. For us, the variety that arises in a bilingual context, giving us Maltese English and with all its idiosyncrasies, that is interesting. So we all know buses at seven in the morning are full of people who's probably whose only common language is English. So there's the Maltese speakers and there's all the non-Maltese people who are speaking other languages. The thing is that for the purposes of the interactions which are necessary in that situation, most of the speakers, irrespective of what their first language is, are going to have the resources to do whatever it is they need to do, like get angry, upset because the driver has been braking too hard and taking corners too sharply. So I had a Maltese person next to me and he was complaining to me in Maltese, but when he wanted to ensure that the driver heard him, he switched into English and his English was not definitely not his dominant language, but he had enough mm -hmm. to do what he needed to do. A linguist friend mentioned this concept of a language as toolbox, that we draw different tools from different linguistic resources. And I wonder if this approach has some limitations. Is it really a toolbox? To what extent can we assume that uh, we share these toolboxes with other people? Maybe Sandra could Maybe I, I can speak a little bit about this idea of a toolbox. I also spend a part of my time in Luxembourg, which is a highly multilingual country where there's basically, you, if you walk into the bank in the space of two minutes standing in a queue, in a line, you can hear Luxembourgish, German, Italian, French, English being spoken in the space of just simple exchanges all around you. And people seem to have a facility in switching. If they try one language in their toolbox and it doesn't work, they will quite usually just switch to another language in their toolbox. Now, what we're talking about in Malta is that most speakers are at least bilingual, maybe even trilingual, and sometimes we also talk about bidialectal. So a speaker from Gozo will have standard Maltese, Gosetan Maltese, and also English. So that's even more complexity there. And I think that thinking in terms of this toolbox as having limitations, of course there are limitations. Of course, if you choose the wrong code to speak with your interlocutor, if I choose to speak Italian and my interlocutor doesn't speak Italian, then I have to go back to my toolbox to get something else out of it. But I think it is much more profitable to think of it as a strength. And one of the things which human beings do naturally is accommodate. So 
not only will I go back to my toolbox and bring out of my toolbox the language or the variety that I need, that very often when I start speaking to another person, I'm likely to be using my natural variety. But as the conversation takes its course, I'm likely to change my own variety to accommodate more to the variety that the other person is speaking. So just to give you an example, if I'm speaking to my siblings in my home, there's likely to be a lot of code switching. We're going to be both speaking both Maltese and English and mixing it quite readily inside and sentences and across sentences. But if I'm in this context, I haven't code switched once and I wouldn't simply because my interlocutors, if I code switch into Maltese, are likely not to have access to that code. So I just wouldn't do it. And it's quite a natural thing for people to do. There's a couple of broadcasts happening at the moment, which we're aware of, where this code switching seems to be written in to the dialogue as well. And that's brilliant stuff for us to look at. And I think they're good to look at because they just show the richness of that toolbox that you mentioned at the very beginning of the program, just how readily available it is. So to show that such phrases come out naturally. So I'm, I'm just going to give you a couple just because they're priceless mm-hmm. and I don't need to come up with my own examples. So we've actually got a student working on one of these programs at the moment and she has extracted some examples from the program. And I'm going to give you a couple of my favorites, okay? So here's one. One of the speakers is talking on the program and she goes, chocolate and vanilla bislash alek is one of them. So you've got there, obviously, the phrase chocolate and vanilla. You've got the word slush. Those words are recognizably in English. But fantastically, the Maltese uh, article has been tagged onto it to show with, so bis slash slash and then Alec is in Maltese he told you is in Maltese okay we've got another one for you my estashikun such a complete douchebag can I say that ash come on so again you've got whole chunks of phrases or the odd word in Maltese and another chunk of phrases in English. So that would be classic code so switching. starting in one language, then maybe adding in a phrase of another, and then maybe going back to the original, just sort of like chopping and changing what sort of language you and, use. Yes, chopping and changing. It's, it's, you wouldn't even necessarily be worried about which is the original language and which isn't. It's this toolbox, which mm-hmm. contains, at least in this case, the two languages. And we're picking and choosing from this toolbox whatever we feel will most lend itself best to our self-expression at any given and moment. Again, speakers do it because they can. Mm. Because if you didn't have, if you weren't bilingual to some degree, you would not code switch because you wouldn't have a code, and a second code to code mm-hmm. switch into. Previously, I was thinking it was sort of like it was using English in the lexicon possibly degrades Maltese as sort of the language by itself, but it seems to be more of an evolution of the use of language. Like it's not something that's static. It's what people use and it does develop. But is there a risk of some people being left behind? Like if some people aren't adoptive of the English language as prominently as others, would they be feeling left behind? Disadvantaged in some ways. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that maybe concerns us a little bit more in Malta is the more formal situations. So if you're looking at um, 
getting to hospital, for example, a, a situation like that, say a, a patient and a doctor situation, or even the education system, those might be a couple of areas where you could worry about people being left behind in the sense that you mentioned earlier. Because yes, if there is then a, a formal choice, not that there is actually in Malta at the moment any specific formal choices made in these contexts, but if there were a formal choice, say like education tends to be expected to be in English, although these are all big ifs, but if that is the case, then yes, someone coming from a different language background might feel disadvantaged and might even to a certain extent get left behind at an institutional level. But I think having said that, even in educational settings, you're looking at uh, individual teachers who are human beings. And again, the natural human desire to be in touch with others, to communicate well, actually overrides maybe formal situations. So even I've met teachers who have said, you know, well, the language of instruction is strictly speaking English, but if I've got an Italian child in front of me, if I've got a Maltese child in front of me and I know they don't know English well, I'd rather they learn mm -hmm. maths, geography, physics, whatever it is. And if that means me going into whatever language they'll understand, then I'll use that. Mm -hmm. But there, you're looking at different contexts and different situations where individuals are having to take their own decisions there. But perhaps on an institutional level, there may be issues of people getting left behind. I think then it's a case of the people on the ground, so to speak, wanting to override that and wanting to make communication happen. I think essentially those are the kinds of discussions that are already happening, just because, as I said earlier, teachers realise that essentially their kids in their class have to be able to function, have They to work, to they need to learn. And I think we do tend, like many other areas of life in Malta, we do tend to do things a bit on the hop. And it's a bit of a shame because there is actually research. There's a, a thesis which has been published as a book by Antoinette Camilleri-Grima, on bilingualism in the education context, for example, which describes what is done and tries to frame it in a way which could be useful to teachers knowing, okay, so maybe when I switch from English to Maltese because I'm teaching maths and I didn't manage to get the concept through in English and therefore I switched to Maltese, that was actually good educational practice because I managed to get the concept through. And what was most important in that case was getting the concept through. But if I'm in another context, in gym, for example, if you're doing something in the gym because you are making the movements that you want the kids to copy, then you don't need to switch to the other language because if you stick with the one language, then the kids are getting both the language and they're still going to be able to do what you wanted to them to do. These are kind of strategies which I think could be made more consciously. And I mean, we're linguists, so we're actually, sometimes it's a conscious decision. I, I will consciously say in this context, I'm not going to code switch. But in another context, if I maybe want to bring people, the group in the corner who've been chatting all through my lecture, if I want to bring them on side or bring them to heel, I might then switch to Maltese for two seconds consciously. The university hosted a conference last year about people with intellectual disabilities and their rights. And most often in these situations, parents choose to have their child study only one language. 
And in some families, they opt for English as the language of their child's education because there are more apps, there are more tools, and there's more for the child to read. And have you looked into how these families and these individuals could navigate this bilingual landscape of Malta? Again, I think one of the things that might become evident from this program is just how much left there is to do. And we're possibly skimming the tip of the iceberg in this. At that same conference, if I remember right, Professor Alexander actually referred to some research which suggested that it's not so much the languages specifically themselves that are an issue, but as you rightly said, the resources supporting those languages. And Maltese, in fact, while many individuals are making considerable efforts to plug this gap, if you like, and to introduce more resources, it's never enough. So yes, people do end up learning one of or acquiring, if you like, one of the languages over the other and not being so bilingual. However, as Professor Alexander actually showed quite clearly, it's not so much a case of not being able to be bilingual so much as us from our end providing those resources which are missing because in actual fact, the risk is that a child who grows up monolingual in a bilingual context, then yes, can end up being disadvantaged to some degree. And that's a shame. And it's not really enough to say, oh, well, but it's okay as long as the language that I do have is English, because English is global and more widely spoken. We know that our reality is in fact very different because we know that there are many situations where you do need in fact to have Maltese. So law would be the most obvious one. You're actually required to use Maltese in law. And I mentioned the courts, but you can talk about a lot of professions where there is a language of choice made also because of the people involved. So architecture would be another one. And yes, children who grow up monolingually in any culture, which is more bilingual or multilingual in nature, are going to suffer as a result. So it would be more important, I would have said it would be more of a priority in the cases of such children and their families to be given added support in whichever language they consider themselves to be weaker in, rather than to say, oh, well, you're monolingual and you're monolingual in the right language, mm. the more globally spoken one, so that's fine. I think we, we might be missing. If I could add something to this whole idea of being bilingual, first of all, you can be bilingual to different degrees and in different skills. Let's say a child who has a specific language disability, especially because if it's a different kind of disability, then it doesn't impede you from being bilingual but if you have a language disability maybe you would want to strengthen your one language but you can always aim for someone being bilingual at certain levels if not at others so I might not need maybe to read Maltese but I might need to speak it because if I don't speak it and I am at the grandmother's house and the grandmother only mainly speaks Maltese, then I'm going to be excluded from a context, a social context, which my cousins who speak both Maltese and English are not going to be excluded from. So I would think that it would be also quite important for decisions on educating a child in the second language to not necessarily be wholesale, either all or none kind of situation, you may just say, okay, I want my child to concentrate on learning to read and write in English, but I would still like my child to be able to communicate in Maltese 
as well. And I don't think it should be an all or none, mm-hmm. but I, I think sometimes with language, one of the difficulties is that everyone's an expert, so everyone seems to know a lot about language. It's not like if, with medicine, you know, if you're not a doctor, you know nothing. But sometimes there isn't a real understanding of these distinctions, which can be, lead to better choices being made. Dr. Sarah Gregg's article appeared in the 20th issue of Think magazine in June 2017. Mistakes versus creativity, Malta's linguistic paradox. In Malta, diversity in language is both sought after and shunned. Some embrace changes as creative and interesting. Others admonish it as incorrect. Dr. Sarah Grek dives into this paradox and wonders if a shift in perception can help see our languages flourish. They say variety is the spice of life. Cliché, maybe, but it's also very true, especially when it comes to language. To understand this variation, linguists regularly adopt a non-judgmental approach, leaving behind the idea of something being said or written incorrectly, focusing on finding out how it is actually used in the real world. This approach, defined as descriptivist, not only helps identify predictable patterns of language use in the unlikeliest of linguistic encounters, but also encourages an appreciation for the rich forms of self-expression present in individuals everywhere. However, as a linguist working in Malta, I face a strange conundrum. On one hand, Malta's linguistic wealth is plainly evident in anything from the witty and totally irreverent Hana Maltese folk music that is still alive and well, to my young children's ability to recognise Maltese, English and Italian onto their cereal boxes at breakfast. On the other hand, there is a palpable concern that some vital linguistic skills are being eroded or lost completely, putting students and job seekers at risk. It would be easy to dismiss these concerns as idle complaints. Yet, it would be a cultural tragedy to enforce rigid rules and regulations that would stifle the ability to tell stories or sing songs in a mashup of languages. A new solution is needed. Multilingualism has been a solid part of the local cultural heritage. As Joseph M. Brincat notes in his book, Maltese and Other Languages, Maltese has coexisted with succession of other languages for hundreds of years, the latest being English, the current trending global language. Given this background, one would think Malta's exposure to so many different languages would make it open to variety. However, I often encounter resistance to the idea. This is followed by anxious concerns or outright condemnation of perceived diversions from the norm. A small consolation is that we are not alone in our concerns. The worry that standards in language are falling is such a familiar one that linguist Milroy and Milroy gave it a term of its own, the complaint tradition. Local evidence of this can be found in the drawn-out threads of irate comments following local media coverage of anything vaguely language-related, connected with education or employment. Because of this, a linguist's attraction to diversity and variation in language must be tempered by an appreciation that some sectors of society benefit from a stricter approach. This is where sensitivity to context is applied when implementing rules. While a society benefits from being multilingual, it also benefits from a freedom to shape language and create variants where needed. 
In Malta, as elsewhere, students need good exam results to progress through the education system and move on to rewarding jobs. BrinCat documents an increase in students taking English and Maltese language and literature exams. This increase is coupled to a steady trend of healthy grades in Maltese and English. Exams are the most popular form of assessment, but are they the best measure of performance? Exams can only give a close-up snapshot of linguistic ability, which is why it is limiting to focus on them and strategies to pass them, at the expense of broader linguistic dexterity. The nurturing of linguistic ability must go beyond school walls, having widespread support from an entire society if it is to carry us through life. Multi-citizens tend to be quick to complain, but less forthcoming for concrete direction. For example, what do we do with the sometimes alarmist view that poor writing skills are costing employees their jobs, when it is not clear what the parameters for good writing skills are in such contexts? Does good writing simply mean correct and clever sentence structure? Should we aim for elegance of expression and some smooth rhetoric? The range of possible options is particularly true for English, which is now used in so many diverse ways that some linguists refer to it as the plural, Englishes. Should we use British English, where Malta gets its English from in the first place? American English, perhaps the most prestigious at the moment, at least among teenagers. How about Maltese English? Oh wait, isn't that just bad English? As a linguist, I might suggest reserving judgment for the moment until we can identify what works, what doesn't, and in what context. Sometimes a job might require linguistic acrobatics. A teacher might need to really inspire her students with some poetic language. A lawyer could really persuade a case with some well-chosen words. Equally, language sometimes just needs to be good enough to get a message across clearly. This is not to say that we simply need to understand each other as that too would be limiting. But diversities are the key. And just as we are all bilingual to varying degrees, we are all sensitive to different social contexts which require a range of linguistic abilities. It is this linguistic dexterity which we want to nurture and the norms which need to be determined, not just by teachers or by the employers, but by informed and sensitive societies. Welcome back. And after we heard the article, do you have any updates or any new research that you could share with us? We're now focusing on Maltese English and collecting a data bank of Maltese English, which is as naturally spoken as possible. So it's not Maltese English that you would collect from speakers sitting in a recording studio such as this, but as much as possible, things like live programs or people out on the street. So basically ecologically valid data in that sense. And that's important for us because we want to listen to how the language is really used because people can use it in whichever way they want. It's throwing up a number of its own challenges because, of course, Maltese English as a variation of language is different from other varieties and is maybe not so well known. It's not so um, mainstream, if you like. So the tools and resources supporting it aren't so readily available and they can't maybe work with Maltese English, with spoken Maltese English to the same extent. So while we're busy collecting the data and trying to analyze it and describe it for its own sake so we understand more about it, we're also trying hard to 
provide more information and more data that these tools such as speech to text and text to speech systems can actually work with so that they can start using Maltese English as well. If you have met one Maltese person and heard their English, next time you meet another Maltese person, you know their Maltese from the accent. And what we're trying to do is work out what features cue listeners who have a template to the fact that someone is a speaker of Maltese English. And we're trying to identify those features because then it will be easier to create applications which will be able to work with Maltese English data as well as other more mainstream varieties. The sing-songy intonation, perhaps. is so, <laughs> so that is my field. So I actually work on intonation. And just now we have been working with some some data from interviews, Times Talk interviews, for example, is one of the sources. And we have noticed that there are these high intonation peaks in certain places which one would not expect them so yes the sing song is one of them thank you very much uh, thank you for joining us thank you thank you that was all from rethink for today tell us what you think about the episode by commenting on think um on facebook think uni on instagram or think uni malta on twitter rethink is produced by think magazine in collaboration with campus fm If you are listening to us from outside of Malta, you can find Think on isuu.com forward slash thinkuni. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find the link to her profile in the show notes. Your hosts, Daivara Pachkaite and Chris Stiles. Our sound technician is Carmo Grek. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and bye for now.